Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Series. You all know first week is a lot of ground to cover, context building, da da da, but you know, we will get there. But first of all, some jokes. <laughs> you know, a lot of my work goes into curating this stuff. You know, I find a quality one. You know, I read through a thousand and five percolate to the surface, and these five has gone through like intense, I wouldn't say prayer, but consideration. But you know, what's Pete? Pete, 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 No? Okay, you will love this. Did you hear about a drummer that had twin daughters? He named them Anna 1 and Anna 2. Think about it. You know? Anna 1, Anna 2. Okay, you all don't play music. Ah. <laughs> hey. These jokes are all smart, no? So if you don't laugh, uh, it's a commentary on you, no? Not the jokes, eh? Okay, okay. A Spanish magician says he will disappear on the count of three. He says, uno, dos, and then poof, he disappeared without a tress. Ah, la, 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 just move through, la. Why couldn't a bike stand up by itself? It was too tired. Okay, okay, okay. What do you call it when Batman skips church? Christian Bill. Christian Bill. Wow. Do you know the eleven commandment, right? Thou shalt not ruin a punchline, you know? That's it. Uh, now you know, now you know. It's okay. Work in progress, sanctification, and all that good stuff. Okay, last one, last one, okay, before I lose you. My wife told me don't get upset if someone calls you fat. She says you're much bigger than that, okay? <laughs> oh, Amy doesn't say that. Amy loves me and she thinks I'm optimum. <laughs> We good, we good. All right. Um, so you know, uh, how many of you were here last week? Uh, last week I gave a message, a sermon that uh, really, you know, the goal of that sermon was to frame what the rest of the year uh, is going to look like and uh, what is our goal uh, for the church as believers in Christ that journey together. What is our goal for the year? And our goal in 2019 is simple: it's to practice the way of Jesus together in our city. And I so love the word practice because practice will mean that I'm not good at it right away, but over time I get better. Sanctification is a process of training, not trying harder. And you know, uh, over the, uh, through the year, we're going to talk about different practices, we're going to talk about different topics, and uh, my goal is to have all these uh, messages translate into a practical application, into a practice that you can put into your daily life. That life with Jesus doesn't, doesn't look like just a Sunday event, but life with Jesus looks like a lifestyle that you actually commit to for the rest of the week, all right? And so that was last week. But yes, six weeks on emotional health, emotionally healthy spirituality. When my US friends saw me posting uh, the sermon graphic, they go, who? Andre, who's the speaker? And then I go, oh, it's me. And it's like, you, really? You, emotional health. And so, you know, 
Yes, I used to make fun of people who talk about emotions of like, you know, you pansy. And I have a Bible verse for it. It's like the heart is deceitful above all else. And, you know, I, I make fun of them. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it is a miracle that I'm talking about stuff like that. But uh, I'm so excited for what God is about to do. All right? You excited? Yeah. Your life? Yes? Okay, I need y'all's attention and y'all's liveliness. <clears throat> I think, you know, I'm a person that's born into the wrong country. Look at me with my red checks and my boots, you know, and my yawners. I think I belong in Texas. <sighs> I like red meat, but let's pray, shall we? Let's pray as we begin. <clears throat> Jesus, first of all, we thank you for the privilege of your presence. We thank you uh, that when we sing, when we worship, when we call upon your name, that you come, that you are here, you are present in this room right now. Whether we are aware, whether we feel it tangibly, we know without a shadow of doubt that you are here. And God, we thank you that your presence is available, is accessible to all of us. God, we thank you that it is your presence that ultimately transforms us, shapes us, molds us into your image. God, we ask for your presence to touch every person today, move our hearts. Lord, we ask indeed that you bring things to the surface by your will. And Lord, we will be brave and courageous to deal with them. But we deal with them not with our own strength, our own ability, our own ingenuity, but we deal with it with your presence. We deal with it with your grace, with your guiding, with your leading. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you'll come, move in this place, have your way. Guide this time where we explore your word. Guide our hearts to lean into you. We love you. We thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Love it, love it, love it. Six-week sermon series on emotional health. We're beginning the conversation this week. It's going to go for six weeks. Uh, in the middle, we might have some breaks. We have my, my some pauses. Uh, just just to announce, uh, in February, uh, Andrew Gardner will be with us. Uh, and he's coming to speak. And so, love Andrew Gardner. You know, uh, awesome, awesome guy who looks really cool for his age. And so, aspire to be him. Um, and uh, we'll talk about different topics. And, you know, if God willing, we'll do six weeks. But, you know, we might go longer than that uh, as we talk about uh, all this stuff, all right? Um, you know, the sermon title is Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And, you know, when we think about emotions, uh, most of us will go the expressive ones like anger, joy, sadness, and all of that, you know. But I, I, I think it's a lot broader than that. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to cast a broad net but hopefully through the series and through my message today, I'm going to streamline it into several specifics that we can work on together as a community. I think more accurately, okay, it's not really a sermon series on emotions, but it's a conversation about our soul, our internal world. And if you don't know what the soul is or you're unfamiliar with the concept, we did a six-week series last year at the start of the year on the soul. We call it soul prosperity. And so every year, this is the pattern. We start the year with a strong uh, internal conversation, an inward journey. In the middle, we do some a la carte stuff and we tell you to become like Jesus. And so we smack you around. And then when we are all settled for the year, we end the year with a justice expression to do the works of Jesus in our city. So that's the pattern, the city for next few years. Okay, you with me? I'm going to take my watch, you know, because they got my watch, because, you know, in the presence, I just lose sight of time and all that stuff. 
get my wrist motion. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> In the creation story, it's written that God created man by forming him from the ground of the earth and breathing into his nostrils, the spirit. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and man became a living soul. Man became a living soul. Our personhood exists as a body, spirit, and soul. Now, we've pretty, been pretty adept as a church in talking about the body, physical health, talk about the spirit, the spiritual needs, spiritual practices, but we've been really, really silent on the conversation of the soul. Now, the soul has often been a subject of mystery. There are a variety of definitions of what the soul is, but to simplify everything, I define the soul as all that is within you, your internal world. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and let all that is within me bless His holy name. Soul in the Bible would include several aspects. It would include your will, your intellect, your mind, your spirit, your heart, as well as your thoughts and your emotions. The Hebrew language looks at all these words as synonyms for the soul. And this is rightly so. In many ways, our thoughts determines and shapes our emotions. How you think, your thoughts, your imaginations, your mental patterns, etc. influences how you feel, your emotions, your feelings, your mood. So when I talk about emotional health today, emotional healthy spirituality, I'm not primarily speaking about emotions, the expression of them, although we'll go into that in the series, but I'll be speaking into what shapes and determines those expressions, those emotions, those feelings, your internal world. Feelings of hatred, bitterness, rage, maybe even depression, anxiety, those internal realities shape how we interact with the world. They shape our mood. They shape our relationships. I would like to suggest to you they shape our destiny. In 3 John, the now refined and mature Apostle John begins his final epistle with a prayer for his friend Gaius, he prays, I pray that you may prosper in all things, even as your soul prosper. The word prosper loosely translates to embarking on a journey towards wholeness and completeness. And that is the goal of this series, that we will embark on a journey together. I'm not guaranteeing that at the end of six weeks, bam, you'll be emotionally healthy. I'm not saying that. But through this series, my goal is for you to begin to have some serious internal conversations that you will, by your own volition, make the intentional step to journeying towards completeness and wholeness. In my study of the soul, I find myself captivated by the words of Jesus in Mark. It says this, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You know, there are a variety of um, interpretations of that verse, but you know, in my study, I believe in that statement, Jesus was not making reference to the eventual destination of the soul. He was not talking about hell, but rather he was talking about its present condition, that you can live on planet earth and live with a lost soul. It is possible then for us to be seemingly in order on the outside, but be in shambles on the inside. I'd like to suggest to you that some of the things you have disordered on the outside is actually caused by a disordered soul. I pray that you will prosper in all things, even as your soul prospers. The outbursts of anger, the fractured relationships, the obstacles you feel are in front of you in terms of your spiritual growth, 
These might be symptoms to a deeper issue that resides in your soul, in your internal world. Am I making sense to you? That's why I tell jokes at the start, you know, because... Am I? (laughs) This is an inward journey, ladies and gentlemen. We are about to embark on as a faith community to intentionally go beneath the surface and tackle the deeper issues on spirituality and life. And this whole series, the thought behind it, was designed to shape our church from the inside out, to reshape. We'll explore areas that we have never done so before in hopes that we become more like Jesus, not just in spiritual practice, but in our emotional health. First of all, let me say this. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm none of that. You know? And so some of you all might think you don't know what you're saying. You know? um, this series really came out of a personal journey uh, unto emotional wholeness. And uh, today I'm just speaking as a follower of Jesus who have experienced you know, the, the ups and downs of emotions, as I'm sure all of us have had at some point. And some of the things that the Lord has taught me through that process and, uh, you know, today, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm happier than I've uh, ever been before. Marriage has helped. Um, Amy is fantastic and wonderful, and she's here today. You know, and so um, she serves. That's why she's downstairs. Not that she's born in church, but... <laughs> but, you know, I'm just speaking as a fellow traveler. And so today, so as I'm speaking, you know, don't think of me as someone who's attained it, but think of me as, some, as a fellow traveler, a shoulder-to-shoulder kind of deal. And let's embark on this journey together, shall we? In the opening week of our journey towards emotional health, we're beginning to see how today's approach to Christian discipleship can sometimes rather can sometimes result in a rather lopsided life. Now, this whole series, I drew inspiration, especially its title from the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by the author Pete Scazzaro. Now, you can buy that book online. It's basically an autobiography of uh, his life. Now, Pete Scazzaro uh, is a pastor who pastors in New York City. And the story goes, um, five to six years into his church plant, um, there was a massive church split. People were leaving his church. And then one day, his wife goes to him and said, Hey, you're a horrible pastor. I'm leaving your church as well. Five to six years into his plant, there was a church split and his wife left the church as well. And so, no, this was crazy. Then his wife, she tells him, I'm leaving your church, you're a horrible pastor. They didn't have a divorce or anything. They still live together. But all she said was, I want to leave your church. You are an unhealthy pastor. The book noted that Pete had no sin, no infidelity whatsoever. He was up to his neck in Jesus' stuff. He was doing works of justice. All the ministry stuff, he was preaching in all the services. He was planting a church. But then, The book also noted that at home, he was grouchy, tired, and worn out. He was overstretched, was saying yes to too many stuff. He was not able to be fully present at home with his wives and kids. His marriage was in shambles, yet he was planting a church. And here's the working theory, and this is the quote that we're basing this whole series on. It goes like this. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Now you might have grown up to me and think emotions equals weakness. Or you might be in a certain career that goes, hey, you know, 
I cannot show my emotions. I have to look like I have it all together because, you know, I won't get ahead and people won't trust me if I'm quote-unquote emotional. That in order to get ahead in life, you need to be less emotional or more emotionally resilient. Through my series, I'd like to propose the idea that the goal should not be resilience or resistance, but the goal should be health. And health, in a nutshell, means wholeness. Wholeness. That to be human is to feel. And as a church, we're going to learn how to feel well. The goal isn't resilience, it is wholeness. Now, we all know how destructive emotionalism is. We let emotions rule, direct, and lord over our lives. They get us into all sorts of trouble. But what is equally destructive is ignoring your emotions and not recognizing that emotions are like the dashboard of the soul. Think about pain. If I were to crawl on the floor now on my knees, I'm a pretty heavy dude, and I'm crawling, I'm crawling, I'm crawling, I would start to feel pain on my knees, wouldn't I? Yes? And that pain, okay, would say to me, hey, Andre, you foolish person, stop crawling on the floor, you are a really heavy person. And if I were to keep crawling, I would keep feeling pain. And what is that pain telling me? My, the pain is telling me to stop doing what I'm doing. Stop destroying yourself. And sometimes emotions are signs, are signals that point to us that, hey, there is something wrong internally. There's something wrong with this whole situation. There's something wrong with your perception. You need to adjust. Emotions are not something we ignore. There's something that we look to. And they are an adequate gauge indicator of the state of our soul, our health internally. The goal is not resilience, it's health. Now here's a base definition of what emotional health is, looks like, and this is a secular definition, it goes like this. Emotional health is an important part of overall health. People who are emotionally healthy are in control of their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. They're able to cope with life's challenges. They can keep problems in perspective and bounce back from setbacks. They feel good about themselves and have good relationships. Now, the lie is this, that emotional health looks like you experiencing a circumstance and you go like, hey, I'm good, I'm emotionally healthy, you know? This is not the goal of the series. The goal of the series is not for you to be happy and chirpy your whole life. The goal of the series is not for you to be positive and have a joyful attitude in the face of loss, disappointment, death trials. Sometimes the emotionally healthy thing to do is to feel sorrow, pain, anguish, confusion. You know, I just spent time with a friend who recently had a relative pass on. This guy is a believer in Jesus. Now, the emotionally healthy, unhealthy thing for him to do would be to go like, yeah, you know, I had the death in my family, but you know what? God is good. Praise His name forevermore. Awesome. Hallelujah. The enemy has been defeated. Death couldn't hold me down and I am emotionally healthy. That's not the goal. That's not the point. Sometimes the healthy thing is to feel. To be human is to feel. The whole spectrum of human emotions. For far too long, the church has separated spiritual maturity from emotional health. In Pete's book, he lists down several examples of this. You can be a dynamic, gifted speaker for God in public and be an unloving spouse and parent at home. Now, I love you, Amy, very, very much. 
You can fun- and this is no mean a dig on like people who serve in church. This is his book, uh, not my book. You can function as a church board member or pastor and be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can memorize entire books of New Testament and still be unaware, unaware of your depression and anger, even displacing it on other people. You can fast and pray half a day a week for years as spiritual discipline and constantly be critical of others, justifying it as discernment. You can lead hundreds of people in Christian ministry while driven by a deep personal need to compensate for a nagging sense of failure. You can pray for deliverance from the demonic realm when in reality you're simply avoiding conflict, repeating an unhealthy pattern of behavior traced back to the home in which you grew up in. Sometimes, you know, we face certain oppositions or certain conflicts and go like, oh man, the devil just has my number. He's just coming against me. Oh man, he's just so oppressive and the, the, you know, the plans of the enemy are against me. Well, two things. One, you know, maybe you know, it's the way you deal with these conflicts that is the issue. Second thing is, the devil, my suggestion is, might have better things to do. As well. There's only one of him. There's devil's not omnipresent and you know. Lol. Okay, last one. You can outwardly be co-op, co- cooperative at church, but unconsciously try to undercut or def- defeat your supervisor by coming habitually late, constantly forgetting meetings, withdrawing and becoming apathetic, or ignoring the real issue behind why you are hurt and angry. Now does this speak and bear witness to any of you? You don't need to raise up your hands. You're not that kind of church. But Pete Scazzaro, no, that's a tongue twister. Peter, in his book, <laughs> we are not friends, so you know, Peter is more close. But Peter, uh, in his book, likened human beings to icebergs. And this is his point. He said, only about 10% of an iceberg is visible above the surface. That is the part of our lives of which we are aware of which we allow other people to see. We go to church, attend a small group, be courteous to one another, give financially and so on. But deep beneath the surface of our lives, however, are layers of childhood wounds, unconscious motivations, fears, defenses, memories and experiences we have perhaps forgotten. 90% is below the surface, so it is with us. People see 10%, but 90% is beneath the surface, hidden from others, and sometimes even so deep that it is hidden from us. It is the 90% that we want to explore in the coming weeks. Now, there are two movies that gives me nightmare. You know, I never watch a horror film. It's just a core value. My core value is I don't want to pay money to be scared. But I have two movies that, that have given me nightmares. First is the movie Armageddon, starring Bruce Willis and uh, the Aerosmith guy daughter. You know, um, I watched that when I was really young. I think the movie came out when I was 10. When I watched the movie, I was like, oh my gosh, the world is ending, the world is ending, the world is ending. And I'm like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, asteroid, asteroid, asteroid. And so when I first got saved, the first book I read was the book of Revelations. I was like, I want to figure out how this whole thing is going to go, kaboom. <laughs> and so Armageddon, still today, till today, gives me nightmares because like, Bruce Willis' ghost is going to hunt me. And so, it, oh, if you haven't watched the movie, Bruce Willis dies. Oh. <laughs> I don't want to close my eyes. Uh, and so, Armageddon, Nightmare. Second movie that gives me Nightmare, Titanic. Titanic triggers up all sorts of emotions for me because here's the thing. I remember watching it one day on Channel 5 as you do when you're young. I watched it on Channel 5, Titanic, the PG version. P- 
pay me like one of your French girls, but PG version. And so, watch Titanic. I remember the next day, I don't know whether you remember, but we went on some like boat cruise thing for like thing. And as a child, that does all sorts of trauma to you, you know. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And so that kind of messed me up. Titanic, till the day where I see it, I'm like, ooh, Leonardo DiCaprio's ghost. And you know, the movie doesn't make sense. The door thing that lit that. What? Calm down, scholar. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just vehement opposition. <laughs> It's okay, we can have a discussion after this. <laughs> okay, back to Jesus stuff. Titanic, the largest, most luxurious ocean liner of that time, crashed into an iceberg on its maiden voyage in 1912. It took more than 1,500 of its 2,200 passengers to the bottom. Tragic. An iceberg. Now the question you might be wondering is, iceberg so big, ship, how did it hit the iceberg? Now there are many theories and many accounts, but here's uh, an account that was given. From the surface, the ship missed the icebergs by all counts, but underneath the surface, a protruding fragment of ice ripped a hole in the Titanic's hull. On the surface, it missed the iceberg completely, but beneath the surface, a protruding piece of the iceberg tore the Titanic's hull. And that's such a commentary on our human condition, on our human interactions. We show a portion to the world that is acceptable, that is all nice and fancy. But how many of you have noticed that like, you might be interacting with someone and everything looks good? You might say something you know, that you think is harmless and all of a sudden you get like a big reaction. Like, why you say that? Why you say that? Why you say this? Because there's more. There's more than what we see on the surface. There's good, I believe, there's more good that we show people, but there's also more ugly. We get hit emotionally. Sometimes we experience it ourselves. Someone might say something, it's like, oh, that feels hurtful, that feels painful. I didn't know that was there. Or in our interactions with other people. Sometimes neither party is able to predict because it's so buried deep down, like an iceberg. Now you might be feeling, is there hope? <laughs> you know, you might go, oh, hopeless, I'll just live my life like that. Don't worry, there's still hope. Your heart will go on. <laughs> Lol. Today we'll embark on a journey. We'll make an intentional decision to look beneath the surface. Today's summer title is this, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Week one, look beneath the surface. Look beneath the surface. Has anything ever happened to you that you responded in a way that was overboard? That was overboard. Um, that was an overreaction. Now, let, let me just put to you a scenario. Suppose I go to Amy and I'm like, Amy, can you get me a can of Coke? And she goes to uh, the supermarket, brings me back a can of Coke, and she puts it back, uh, puts it in front of my eyes. And it's not one of those red cans. It's the black ones. It says Diet Coke on it. And I look at it and be like, you think I'm fat? Huh? You really think I'm bigger than that? Not bad. You're linking points. That's good. That's good. Huh? Why does it say diet? Why didn't you give me the actual coke? Why didn't you give me real stuff? You know that this has... Major reaction, right? We can look at it and go like, Amy was at fault. Right? 
But did no, 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 no. Okay, all the girls are going. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on, hold on. I haven't finished the point yet. But we all know that my reaction was probably I married that was probably an over reaction. Because deep beneath the surface, I, at surface, I might have insecurities about my weight. I might have insecurities about body image. I might doubt whether she really finds me sexy. I might have all these questions. Hey, 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 hey. Sexy is a, you know, gender neutral word. <laughs> it is, it is. Amen, amen. Yes, yes. Yeah. I once saw this uh, line where this guy says, I have a bumper sticker on my car that says, honk if you think I'm sexy. And it's like, sometimes I just stop at a green light and wait till I feel good about myself. <laughs> okay, I'm wasting time. Okay. We've all experienced outbursts, right? You're not sure why you responded in such a way, but realize that it was something that, in the words, um, you know, in modern day, you say that you were triggered. There was something that caused that reaction, that caused that outburst. It is a trigger for a reason. That means there was something beneath the surface that you didn't predict, that the other person didn't predict as well. Why did that just happen? But it could be something even more serious than that. You may be feeling down most of the time. You might be, you know, notice there's someone who is gloomy, cynical. You might feel bad about yourself, unworthy. You don't deserve to be happy. You know, you might be doing the, everything that you're supposed to. You go to school, you go to work. But it always feels like an uphill battle. You may feel hopeless often. Unloved, shameful, or cry a lot without any real concrete reason. My point is this, these are all symptoms to a deeper issue that lies beneath the surface. Bad relationships, not thriving at work, pathological sadness, a lack of progression in your spirituality can sometimes be symptoms to something that's happening deep below the surface. A starving, malformed, malnourished, emotional life. Emotional health, or rather emotional unhealth, isn't just a church problem. It is a global crisis. We know emotional unhealth is a known cause of depression and anxiety. In Singapore, there has been an annual increase of about 7% in the number of new patients for the last three years. Based on the Singapore Mental Health Study conducted in 2010 by IMH, as many as 1 in 17 people have suffered from depression at some time in their lives. This is a stat from Samaritans of Singapore. It says that suicide is the leading cause of death for those aged between 10 to 29. There are 2.5 times more deaths from suicide than transport accidents. 361 lives were lost to suicide in 2017. Male account for more than 66.2% of all suicides. And for every suicide, at least six suicide survivors are left behind. And it's not just a Singapore problem, but really a global problem. We think of celebrities like Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade. Anthony Bourdain was a brash, globe-trotting chef. Kate Spade, the innovative designer. The idea that people who seem to have such full, fulfilling lives would kill themselves is a tragic reminder that celebrities who feel more familiar to us than the everyday people are at the same time total strangers. Dave Iscott, author of a new biography on Robin Williams, said this, We can't predict the entirety of a person from the portion of the image we see on TV or in writing or in social media. The reality is that it is only a fraction of who they are, the part of themselves they choose to put out and share. My suggestion to you today is that there is more beneath the surface. 
Just a show of hands, and you don't have to lift your hands if you don't want to. No pressure at all. But how many of you at some point in your life battled with thoughts of suicide or had a suicidal thought come to your mind? Show of hands, how many of you? Bunch of you. I'd like to suggest that there's more to the surface. Here's my point. Discipleship or believing in Jesus means submitting one's whole life to him. Now, discipleship to Jesus isn't just about the spiritual life or the spiritual life as we know it. It It's about the Spirit of God invading all areas of life. The dynamic, transformative power of God transforming every area of life until you and I are conformed into the image of the Son. My point is this. Jesus doesn't just want to teach you how to read the Bible and how to pray. He wants to teach you how to be human. And he does so through his spirit working in you, but also by the life that he modeled and exemplified for us to follow. So we are finally going to the Bible. If you're wondering, is this a church in the first place? In talking about emotional health, we're going to look at a passage of scripture in the life of Jesus. And this is our belief. Our belief is the way of Jesus is the way of flourishing. And to walk in the life of Jesus, we must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, it says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Catch that. Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus, you know, it's so, it's that, that, that part, that internal woe that's within him. He says, I feel overwhelmed, troubled, sorrowful to the point of death. And then he looks at his disciples and says, stay here and keep watch with me. Isn't that such a com- commentary on community and our need for it? The Messiah himself, in the midst of his pain, said, I need community. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said this, Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, If it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. In that passage of scripture alone, we see Jesus experience a spectrum of human emotions. Sorrow, being overwhelmed, troubled, fear, some form of anxiety, disappointment with his disciples. Like, hey, you cannot just keep watch disappointment, confusion, doubt but ultimately, trust. Jesus, his soul, this deep visceral part of his being is suffering. He is, quote, troubled and overwhelmed. This is not one of all through the gospel in Jesus' life. We recognize that he was a man marked with emotions. Let's have those uh, verses up. These were the emotions that the Bible captured that Jesus experienced. He was filled with joy. His heart was moved with compassion. He expressed amazement. He felt overwhelmed with grief. He was angry and distressed. Think about him just, you know, whipping those fellows who were selling things in his temple silly. 
That's not something that we talk often in Sunday school. You know, you don't see the kids coming out with a craft of a whip. Like, mommy, they teach me about, like, Jesus' anger today, you know, and none of that. But, you know, gosh, people, you are listening, you know, maybe you just help them. Like, yeah, yeah, shoot. Jesus got angry, okay? Some of y'all might go like, oh, no, he was just like, you know, righteous indignation. He was like, hmm, you bad people. No, he whipped them. He was angry. He was sorrowful and troubled. He shed tears. Jesus didn't just have emotions. He was a highly emotional being. Most of us think Jesus as a spotlight figure, like, oh, blessed are the poor. Blessed are. Mm, bless you, child. Jesus was an emotional being. Why? Jesus had emotions because even though he was divine, he was also human. To be human is to feel. I think about that line uh, from the movie I, Robot. Some of you have seen it. Lousy movie, but Will Smith. And this was what Will Smith said to the robot. He said, I, I, I don't, robots don't feel fear. They don't feel anything. What distinguishes us from AI and I believe the rest of creation is that we feel. And not only that, we feel deeply. To be human is to feel. And Jesus being human on the earth felt the full spectrum of human emotion. I'd like to read us a quote from Theologian named Walter Hansen, he says this, In our quest to be like Jesus, we often overlook his emotions. Jesus reveals what it means to be fully human and made in the image of God. His emotions reflect the image of God without any deficiency or distortion. Catch that. When we compare our emotional lives to his, we become aware of our need for transformation of our emotions so that we can be fully human as he is. The problem is not that you feel. The problem is what you do with that which you feel. Now, growing up, much of my understanding of strong Christians, those strong in the Lord, those strong in faith, came from this thought idea that the best leaders were those without any sin and who smiled a lot, who looked like they had everything good. Now, this is our church service. We have praise and worship, jam jam. We had fun announcements, Yuffie pastor. We have Andre telling jokes, Fun, 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 happy, 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 rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, come on, like we ascend the hill of the Lord. No, we go into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Now, if you think that church equals to Christianity, then your idea of Christianity does not have any room for lament, sadness, grief, doubt, confusion, insecurity, anger. But the Christian life is so much more than this expression that we have going on. In some Christian circles, perhaps, repressing or disavowing authentic emotion is considered a virtue or perhaps even a gift of the Spirit. Denying anger, ignoring pain, skipping over depression, running from loneliness, and avoiding doubt are not only considered normal, but actually virtuous ways of living one's spiritual life. It's faith. But this is not the model we find in Jesus who freely expressed his emotions without shame or embarrassment. We know of spiritual giants in the Bible, Elijah, Jeremiah, David, Job, who battled with emotional turmoil. And the truth is easy or at least possible to write off, right? They were imperfect, flawed people who had sinned in their lives. If only they had more faith, more trust, more Jesus, they would have been okay. But the problem with that theory is the fact that Jesus was also said. Jesus was perfect, sinless, without a speck of moral deficiency, was said. Maybe not depressed, 
but he was no stranger to emotional pain. In fact, the prophet Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows who was deeply acquainted with grief. Pastor Ben Meyer says this, the cultural triumph of the smile leaves behind a trail of casualties where evangelical churches theologize happiness and ritualize the smile. Sad believers are considered spiritually ostracized. Sadness is a scarlet letter of the contemporary church embroidered proof of a person's spiritual failure. Next slide. It says this, the sinless humanity of the Son of God was manifest not in happiness or success, but in a life of sadness and affliction, a man of sorrows. In erasing sadness from our culture, this is talking about church culture, we also erase Christ. Here's the truth about emotions and feelings. Some are good and enjoyable, we know. Pleasure, euphoria, excitement, those are good. And for the most part, we know what to do with the good ones, right? The good ones, we just need to like press the pause button and make them last as long as possible. Right. But we also know that there are the bad ones. Anger, rage, sadness, fear, disappointment, anxiety, a low-grade depression. For the most part, we don't really have a clue on how to deal with negative feelings. But the truth is this, we all have negative feelings. We all feel. Whether we choose to express it or not, we all feel deeply. Some of us are spoonful, a teaspoonful. Some of us are truckload of negative feelings. Therefore, my suggestion to you today is that at some point you have to deal with it. At some point you have to learn to deal with it well. And so here's how we typically deal with our emotions. I'm coming to a close semi-soon. Not too soon, semi-soon. I don't want to, you know, disappoint you and make you feel emotionally troubled. But, (laughs) But here's what we often do, okay, with emotions. First approach is this, detachment. Most of us detach from emotions, and this we can find this idea primarily in Eastern spirituality. The belief is all suffering is the byproduct of desire and attachment. Therefore, the way we deal with emotional pain is that we detach from any and all desire, and therefore pain is no more. We transcend, we be free, we rise above our attachments. Emotional detachment can also be known as emotional numbing, or in its chronic form, depersonalization disorder. This type of emotional numbing or blunting is a disconnection from emotion and is frequently used as a coping survival skill during traumatic childhood events such as abuse or severe neglect. Think of it as underreacting as opposed to overreacting. I said it earlier, emotional health doesn't mean you are happy, cheerful, okay all the time. Sometimes the right feeling is sorrow, is fear, is anxiety. How do we work through that? Another way we deal with emotion is through suppression. Suppression. And this is prevalent, truthfully, in church culture. We have a term for it. It goes, faith it till you make it. We go, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The kingdom is coming. God is love. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the church. Whatever we face in life, we know that it will work out for our good. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose. The enemy has been defeated. Death couldn't hold him down. We are victorious in Christ. My emotions should take a hike. Now, were all the things I said earlier true? Absolutely true, Yes. Now, is there a place where we tell our emotions to take a hike, to get off? Yes, yes. But what happens, okay, when you 
look at your emotions and you preach your little five-minute sermon and your emotions looks at you with arms crossed and pardon what I'm about to say next, points the middle finger at you and say, no, I'm staying. What do you do then? How many of you have experienced that? You preach your little sermon, you read the scriptures, you pray the right prayers, you get the right counsel, you get the prophetic words, but your emotions, they, they stay, they don't leave. Or is it just me? Me and my emotions, we don't get along because we don't talk anymore. <laughs> In the church, we tell people directly or indirectly to fake it to people and maybe even to yourself. You put on a new Hillsong album, you go for a Bible study, you attend a conference, you do all the right Christian things, but you just don't deal with it. But the truth is this, as you continue suppressing and stuffing your emotions deep down, you'll progressively realize that, like all things in life, there is a limitation. There is a capacity that you are about to cross. And then your emotions will come spewing out, unpredictable and often untamed. Think of the big overreaction. Think of the steep drop to feelings of depression. Maybe some of you might relate to what I'm saying. We swallow hard and lock our hurt feelings inside, not in an effort to process and release them, but to wallow in hurt. Much like an oyster deals with the irritation of a grain of sand, we coat the issue with more and more and more and more layers of hurt until it forms a hard rock of sorts. But this rock is no pearl. It is a rock that we'll eventually use either to build a barrier, to build a wall between us and God, us and people, or a rock we use to hurl at someone in retaliation. And this is a, the, the last one. This is a really common way we deal with emotional pain. And I'm sure most of us can say at some point we've done this. And this is distraction. 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 Let me read to you a quote. Peace Zero again. It says this. Our churches are in trouble. They are often filled with people who have never learned to biblically integrate anger, sadness, and other emotions into their lives. Many of us are so involved in serving that we have forgotten what it means to take care of ourselves. A product of the constant business that comes with a world that never turns off. This has led to a discipleship that doesn't address the deep needs underneath the surface of our lives. We look for band-aids to give us quick superficial fixes to deep-rooted issues in our hearts. I'd like to say to you, and this is a pastor, I know this will affect the way we operate, but if you know that you are struggling with emotional hurt, pain, you need to work through stuff. Stop serving. Stop serving. Go back to the quiet place, the secret place. Seek God. More Christian activity is not going to solve your emotional issue. It feels good. It feels like you're doing all the right things. But can I suggest to you that maybe the right thing to do in that situation, in that season, is to go to the secret, the solitary place and work it out. I'm giving you an out here. If you know that you are emotionally unhealthy, you need to work through stuff, stop serving. We'll figure it out. Might have a stripped down band, might have no ushers, floors might be a little dirtier, it's fine. Andrew Stockline, let's have that picture up. I don't know how many of you are familiar and know who Andrew Stockline is. Now, you know, this is a man who looks like he has it all together. Beautiful wife, three boys, you know, and a, 
amazing. And, and, and I chanced upon his story uh, when I was deep in uh, really one of the toughest emotional seasons of my life. And I read his story and, and it really struck me uh, deeply. Andrew Stockman was a, uh, he's a 30 year old man, wife, three boys, charismatic teacher, loads of gifting, and he was a pastor of a fast growing mega church big church. Workaholic by his, by his own admission, as the church grew, it began to have an emotional and spiritual toll on him that was toxic. Now, this is a stereotype of what a pastor is. A pastor is someone who just drinks coffee, chats with people, and reads the Bible all day. You know, that's, that's not me. Maybe Pastor Daniel, but that's not me. But. Oh. Ah, kidding, kidding, kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. Jason and I are still working here, so (laughs) cannot bash. But the reality is very different, uh, especially in a mega church like Andrews, where you're expected to not only be the teacher and spiritual director of a church, but a CEO figure, an executive director of a non-profit, a management guru, a strategic genius, a therapist, a community organizer, all in one. There's a lot of pressure. And Andrew began to have anxiety, depression, and then panic attacks, one so severe that he ended up in the hospital. Now, after that point, he went on a four-month sabbatical. His first week back, he began a sermon series on mental illness based on the life of Elijah. We know from the Bible that Elijah himself battled with depression and thoughts of suicide. And I watched the sermon. I watched that sermon. Uh, And he was smiling. He was cracking jokes. He was as, if not more, funnier than, than I am. He looked absolutely healed up. Andrew proceeded to read out stats upon stats of, about suicide. And then he said this, the church is to be a safe place where these things are talked about and not avoided. 12 days after that sermon, Andrew killed himself in his church office while his wife and three boys were playing outside the window on the church playground. What struck me as especially tragic about the whole issue is what his wife said the first week that Andrew came back from the sabbatical. She said this, We still have a long way to go to work through it, but we are all in. You guys, he loves this place so much, he didn't want to stop. He would have kept going on and kept going and going and probably would have cost him his life. That's how much he loves all of you. That's how much he loves this place. And the tragic thing is that 12 days later, after that statement was made, his work did cost him his life. Pathological business, workaholism, being unrested, is one commandment that we frequently brag about breaking. We don't often hear people brag about murder, having an affair, stealing, but we regularly hear people in church brag about how many days they work their week, how late they work till, how in demand they are, and how tired they are. We venerate workaholism even whilst we suffer under its cruel tyranny. Corey Tambuman said, if the devil can't make us sin, he will make us busy. Because here's the thing, busyness and sin have an ironically similar effect. They cut us off from the living, restful connection of the Father. Busyness distracts us from working through the deep issues, the deep matters of the heart. And the common denominator among all three approaches is that none of them actually deals with the emotional pain. Hatred, anger, bitterness, sadness, sorrow, lament. These feelings are so intense, too intense. I need to run away. But in Jesus, we see a battle way. Let's look at that verse again, Matthew chapter 26. 
He experienced sorrow, trouble, anxiety. And note this, in the midst of that pain, that sorrow, that disappointment, he don't go like, you know, strike up a yoga pose and go like, you know, I need to transcend above this. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. I'm going to be detached from all expectations. Mm. He doesn't do that. He doesn't quote a verse and go like, well, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul is going to say that in a few years. He doesn't do that. Nor does he go, hey, disciples, maybe let's just go out for supper. Not the last one, but let's just go out for supper. Let's just have wine, cheese, bread, and let's just, you know, forget the whole thing. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Jesus deals with his emotions and pain, all the awkwardness, the fears, insecurity. Jesus goes right into the thick of it, stares down the overwhelming emotion, feels it in its entirety, and deals with it. Why? Why? Because Jesus was emotionally mature. Jesus was emotionally healthy. And this beautiful exchange, we see God, we see Jesus give to God his Father his emotions. He expresses them. I feel sorrow, I feel overwhelmed. He expresses his honest desires. I don't really want to do this. We see, we see that turmoil, that tension in the soul of his desire to do the Father's will, yet his desire to not get beaten and killed. We see that turmoil in his internal soul. He expresses that honesty. And in that place of brokenness and vulnerability, Jesus, at the end of that passage of scripture that we read, finds trust and assurance. In the coming weeks, we will explore further what it means to bring to God your emotions. But I'd like to close with a, a, a final story. And, you know, it's week one of the series. We have five more weeks to go, and it's going to be a journey. And uh, we're going to dive deeper and deeper and deeper. But, you know, my charge to you this week is consider that perhaps the dysfunction you experience in life is caused by a deep, deep, deeply rooted emotional issue. And I can tell you, and it's spoilers alert, <laughs> no human being on planet Earth can solve your deep emotional need. Only God. Sounds like a cliche. Sounds like a made-up thing. But it's so absolutely true. And we'll discover what that means in a deeper way through the weeks. Final story. Joseph Skirvin was born in Ireland in 1819. After receiving his university degree from Trinity College in London, he quickly established himself as a teacher, fell in love, and made plans to settle in his hometown. Then tragedy struck. The day before his scheduled wedding, his fiancée drowned. Overcome with grief, Skirvin left Ireland to start a new life in Canada, where he met and fell in love with Eliza Roche. Just weeks before she was to become Joseph Skirvin's bride, she suddenly grew sick. In a matter of weeks, Eliza died. A shattered Skirvin turned to the only thing that had angered him during his whole life, his faith. Through prayer, he found not just solace, but a mission. The 25-year-old Skirvin took a vow of poverty, sold all of his earthly possessions, and vowed to give his life to the physically handicapped and financially destitute. Ten years later, Skirvin received word that his mother had become very, very ill. The man who had taken a vow of poverty did not have the funds to go home to help care for her. He was deeply heartsick. On an occasion when Joseph became ill, a friend who was visiting with him discovered a poem near his bed and asked who had written it. Skirvin said, The Lord and I did it between us. He thought the poem would perhaps bring some spiritual comfort to his mum, who still lived in Ireland. Skirvin had not intended that anyone else should see it. And the poem goes like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer.
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We think of prayer as petition. We think of prayer as checking off a shopping list. But read the book of Psalms. The Psalms function as a model for liturgy. And two-thirds of the Psalms are actually words of lament, of grief, of anguish. There's even a, a, a verse in Psalm that go, I'm so upset, I'm so frustrated. that." And, and the, the psalmist wrote, I wish that their children's head would be struck by a rock. And, and language, you know, Jesus is not into murder or genocide. Why the heck would that make it into the Psalms? My suggestion is this, that perhaps God is a lot more okay with honesty than you think he is. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Your honesty, your emotions, your fears, your insecurities, the deep visceral part of a being that goes, I'm overwhelmed, I'm sorrowful, I'm fearful. Take these things to God in prayer. Can we stand?